Good morning. Glad y'all are here. We're going to finish off the Anabaptists, Mennonites, Hutterites, Amish, and Brethren, God willing, this morning. Um, this is an exciting class. How many of y'all have been in here generally since... Wow. Thank you for your faithfulness in coming. This morning as I got up and, and started the PowerPoint uh, for today's lesson, I thought, you know, we've actually done pretty good so far in this class. We started out with the apostolic church, and we, we talked about how Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like the, a, a mustard seed that's planted, and it's grown into an incredible tree. And, and the base of my drawing for the church is kind of wide because it's a wide tree today. But when it started out, it wasn't so wide. When it started out, it was Jesus and a ragtag band of followers, not the highly educated, not the highly uh, economically advantaged, not the well-placed in society, <clears throat> some ragtag fishermen, a tax collector. They felt the same way about them then that we do now. <laughs> the uh, infernal revenue service, no. Um, just a ragtag band of small backroads people that uh, uh, have grown into uh, the church that we have today. It was an apostolic church in the New Testament, and from that it grew into what we would consider or call the Catholic church. Catholic church in the original inception of the word, a catholicae, which meant a united church, a universal church. The church was never seen as one group of people in one place and then another church is one group of people in another place and another church is one group of people in a third place. The church is the body of Christ. There is one body. There is one church. One, in that sense, holy or Catholic church. And the church we saw, and we went through the years of it as a Catholic church, we saw the original uh, break-off of the Coptic church over the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon, when there was a, a, a division in the church over the, the, the role of Jesus Christ in, in sending forth the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Himself, and, and, and the, the Coptic church, we went through that. The Egyptian church, it's also called. And we saw that early branch come off of the main tree. We saw the division between what became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and split off from what became known as the Western or the Roman Catholic Church. The Western Church centered in Rome. The Eastern Orthodox Church centered in Istanbul. The Eastern Orthodox Church will go on to split. Actually, it's happened if we look at things chronologically, but we haven't covered it yet in this class, and I'm not sure how and when and where we will. But trust me, that branch splits off and forms the Russian Orthodox Church and some other uh, 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 churches that are associated with the Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, Church, if you will. And we followed that. We continued to walk through as, and followed the Roman Catholic Church as the Lutheran branch grew in off of it. I mean, yeah, the branch is going this way. Um, <clears throat> there is no significance to the fact that I've got it growing right. Um, <laughs> don't, don't. Anyway, I did this at 6 this morning, and it was all I could do to color in the lines. Um, the Lutheran church branches off, 
And, and, and this is in 1520s, really, the 15 late teens in the 1520s, as Martin Luther and, and people who followed the, 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 the reforming points that he brought about stood in protest to the governmental church, the Catholic church, and protest. They were protestants, Protestants. And that's our real big first label of the Protestant movement. And then last week we looked at uh, the Anabaptist break-off. And the way I drew that, it's kind of part Lutheran and it's kind of part Catholic because they kind of took off a little bit from both. They kind of seized on what Luther was doing. This is in the 1520s. And this is what we talked about last week, the Anabaptist break-off. You've got that lesson with you. It's the same lesson we're using this week. I've got some additional material because we've stretched it out that I get to add verbally that's not in the lesson, um, uh, uh, depending on how time runs this morning. So I'm sorry, not everything I'm telling you about is in the written lesson. That's, that's uh, uh, my mistake, but it's the virtue of the extra time we've got. The Anabaptists break off over time, and what we'll see is first the Mennonites and the Hutterites. Those are two of the early break-offs. They get followed with a subsequent break-off later of the Amish and the Brethren churches. And so those are the branches that you see today from the Anabaptist movement. Now, while I say that, uh, one of the, the, I, I send this lesson out to a number of people to look at or to help put them to sleep um, before I, I put it into final form and I get comments. And one of the things that uh, Pastor Fleming noted on the lesson which I think is dead on accurate, and, and he's uh, obviously a good student of church history, is while the Anabaptist movement itself results in most typically the Mennonites and the Amish and the Brethren and the Hutterites today, the truth of the matter is there are a number of different denominations that have been affected by Anabaptist doctrine. And if you come from, for example, the Church of Christ, if you come from a number of different congregational type backgrounds, you're going to see in what we talk about today some ideas and concepts that, that were grabbed onto by the leaders within your particular strain of church history that you may have grown up in. So we'll do that as we look at it. Let's get back, though, into the Anabaptist strain of things. And I want to tell you a story. I want you to go back to Zurich. And Zurich in the 1519 era. This is two years after Luther has banged the 95 theses to the door. We're in 1519. This young uh, priest, scholar, preacher type named Ulrich Zwingli. Scott Reiling taught on him. He shows up in Zurich, Switzerland. And he starts preaching there. And he's ministering at the church there. And Ulrich Zwingli is the first preacher that I know who decided he was going to preach by starting with one book of the Bible and just going through book by book by book by book. And that's the way he was preaching. And in the process, he was attacking things that were going on in the church that he didn't approve of. The main thing that I want to focus on this morning is in 1522, Zwingli went after tithing. Think about that for a minute. We had tithing on our to-do list. Fleming, Pastor Fleming taught on that last week, wasn't it? A wonderful sermon. If you didn't hear it, you ought to hear it. It's probably the best money sermon I've ever heard in my life. He, he just, like everything else he seems to do, he truly does it with, with excellence. And uh, uh, Ulrich Zwingli was really going after tithing. Let me tell you why. If you lived in what we now consider Switzerland at the time, 
you were required to tithe 10%. Now this is not, gee, I think maybe I'll tithe 10%. No, you were required. This was not, well, then I'm not going to church there. Doesn't matter if you attend or not. You were required. You were baptized into the church unless you were Jewish when you were born. Everybody was baptized into the church. They're put on the tithing rolls and they're required for the rest of their life to tithe 10%. Whether they show up for church or not, it's not, gee, let's put it in the basket. It's, you do it or you're going to jail and hell. Maybe not even in that order. That was a requirement. Zwingli starts reading his Bible and he says, tithing is good, tithing is right, but it's never mandatory for the church. It's something you give out of, as David Fleming said, a loving and, and, uh, and convicted heart before God. And so Zwingli is teaching against tithing. Now he's the priest. He's the, the, the city's main church guy. And he's preaching against mandatory tithing. And in the process, the mother church back at Rome probably is getting upset a bit. But uh, the city of Zurich is all ears. And this is radical. Can you imagine going to a church where your preacher is actually telling you you don't have to give the way the law requires you to give? Do it out of a voluntary spirit if you choose, if you choose not to. That's between you and God. That was revolutionary. That was, that was significant. That was very different than what these people had ever heard before. So the community of Zurich and Zwingli really calls what, what we would consider a disputation. It's kind of a debate. He says, let's debate the issue in front of the whole community. Everybody. Zurich at the time has 5,000 people in attendance. Roughly what we have on Sunday morning in our church. I say in attendance. That's how many people lived in the city. That's the population. I spoke wrong. 5,000 people is the population of the city of Zurich. Roughly what we have in attendance on a Sunday morning. Out of that 5,000 people for this public debate, 600 show up. That's pretty big. That's kind of like our class times two. Out of the 5,000 people that come to worship service last Sunday, about 1 in 10 come to this class in general. Okay. So that'd be about 1 in 5. When you consider that that 5,000 includes kids, includes women who really don't get much of a chance to vote at the time, except through that wonderful thing called leverage with their husbands, <clears throat> which is compelling. Um, you figure you've got a major voting block. Now, Zwingli does something here. Zwingli says that this disputation, this civic meeting, this meeting of the Zurich people is actually a church meeting. Remember, everyone's a member of the church unless they're Jewish. Everyone's baptized into the church as an infant at the time. So everyone's a member of the church. Everyone's responsible for tithing. And Zwingli says this disputation is really a meeting of the church. And that means the city council, who gets to make the decisions out of that disputation, are making church decisions that are binding on the church. 
the Catholic Church structure was not real pleased over this. But what are they going to do? Send in an army? They don't have the army to spare. So Zwingli does this and says, all right, Zurich, this is our Zurich church. It's a big church meeting. It's a business meeting. It's a debate meeting. We'll have the debate over tithing. The debate has taken place. The city council gets to vote. And the decision is going to be made. Now, at this time, Zwingli kind of moderates his tone. While he's been preaching for the last year that tithing, mandatory tithing is wrong, at this meeting, he just kind of says, okay, then the city council needs to figure out how to slowly kind of taper off from mandatory tithing. He recognizes that his economic reforms will radically change the economic structure of the entire city. And so he's kind of talked into moderation. Meanwhile, Zwingli's students, they get a little frustrated with him. They're saying, how can you moderate your tone? This is the Bible. The Bible speaks. Where the Bible speaks, we should listen and we should echo. And we don't say, well, God said it. Let's moderate it. And they get upset with him. And this starts kind of a little rift growing between Zwingli and his students. The rift continues. In October, they have the second disputation, the second big citywide meeting. And in this, out of the 5,900 come. We've got almost the whole voting population there. Two issues mainly being discussed. The first issue is, is that of images in the church. Icons. Should we have images of saints? Should we have icons and pictures that people can worship? Historically, they actually served a, a, a purpose that wasn't as necessary in the church. You can go, for example, to the cathedral at Notre Dame in, in Paris, and you can walk along and you can see scenes from the birth to the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And, and you'll see it in stained glass windows, and you'll see it in lots of, of different paintings in old medieval churches from a time where people couldn't read and didn't have Bibles. And those pictures served as teaching tools to remind people of the Bible stories and to use to be teaching them. But now we're reaching a time where literacy is growing, where books are growing. We've got printing presses. And that concept of pictures is gone. And the idea is now there are images. There's a, a crucifix with a Jesus on it. There are images that, that, that arguably are wrong. And that's the big disputation issue. The second one is whether or not the Catholic Mass should continue to be observed. Is the Catholic Mass, in fact, Jesus Christ coming down into the bread and the wine and being crucified again? And are we, in fact, partaking of His crucified body when we partake of the elements? These are the big issues at that disputation. And Zwingli's students are saying, down with the images, down with the icons that's never in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says not to have any graven image. And down with the Catholic Mass. And the students think Zwingli surely won't be a sellout on this like he was the tithes. But Zwingli says, on the image issue... All right, let's take them out, but let's don't take them out right now. Let's wait a few months to implement it. Let's gradually phase them out while we're teaching everybody why they're wrong. Okay? That's kind of a more mature view in, in my estimation. But the students, they're like, no, man, it's wrong. Let's get it out now. And then the other issue, the Catholic Mass, 
Zwingli says, let's let the city council decide how to phase that out. When and how and everything. And the students get very upset with him. His 21, 22-year-old students say, you have sold out God and the Holy Spirit. They say, um, um, well, let me do it this way. The Holy Spirit has decided this, not the city council. This should not be the city council's decision. You get it out of Scripture. That's what the students are saying. Students are saying, how dare you say the city council will decide how to phase this out when Scripture says it doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there. Get rid of it now. Period. Zwingli's response is, I'm not letting the city council decide whether it belongs or not. They're only deciding how to implement the Scripture. I'll give you that the Scripture says the Catholic Mass is wrong. But how do we implement those changes without ripping everything apart? Let the city council make that decision. Which is interesting. He doesn't have the church making it, except to the extent the city council is ruling, if you will, the church. It's, it in itself is a change. Here's the line of dispute between Zwingli and the students. Zwingli, it, it's a question of, does government make the decisions of the church, or does the church body make the decisions? See, Zwingli says it's still government. He couldn't get over the concept in his brain that, that the government was a Christian government, had been that way for over a thousand years, and that was the church to him. To the students, said, no, the church is not just who's been baptized in and who gets deeded in by their parents or by some system. The church is an actual body of people who have made a decision for Jesus Christ. And those are the people that need to make decisions on what happens at the church. Not the government. And that's the difference. It boils down to this question. What is the church? Is the church put together of people you know, who, who are put into the church, whether they have any choice in the matter or not? Or is the church made up of people who choose God? Now, I was brought up learning... One of the, the things we were taught when I was in high school was you make a personal decision for God. You don't do it just because your parents did, right? The, the, the slogan we got was, God has children, not grandchildren. So you make the decision. Don't think you get in just because your parents are in. It's a good lesson for a high school kid. It was something we could grab hold of. It's the same principle here. That's the fight. Who's the church really made of? So, in the process of this, the students are in that tug of war with Zwingli and the straw that broke the camel's back, as we talked about last week, was infant baptism. As the students realize, from their perspective in Scripture, there is no basis for baptizing infants and placing them into the church. The church is made up of believers who repent of their sin through their faith in Jesus Christ, and have redemption. And, and so these folks are now saying, in fact, one fellow kept his kids from being baptized. Now, remember, baptism is what puts you on the tithing rolls, the tax rolls. This is a revolutionary concept. And so we talked about last week, January 21st, 1525, at the home of Felix Manns, where a dozen men meet together. They are baptized together. This is more than a reformation. This is them trying to restore a New Testament Christianity, a whole different body of Christ, and they were not warmly received. They were labeled derisively, in other words, 
contemptuously. It was not a nice label. Anna, which is the Greek word for again, ana, the Greek word again, Baptist, the Greek word for immerse or baptize. Anabaptists were the people who got baptized again. Now, that was not a compliment to them because in their mind, they were just Baptists because they didn't think the first baptism counted. It wasn't a real baptism in their mind. They were just being baptized, not rebaptized or baptized again. This kind of catches us up with a little different flavor of what was going on as we roll into this week, and I want to talk to you about Balthazar Hubmeyer. Dr. Balthazar Hubmeyer, an interesting early fellow in the Anabaptist church movement. I like Hubmeyer for a number of reasons. There's a lot of material on him in your handout that I'm not going through this morning. He gives a good outline of their early Anabaptist beliefs that I've put in there. But what I want to tell you about Hubmeyer is a couple of things that I find particularly interesting. And I'm not saying I put the boring stuff in the handout. I'm just saying you can read that at your leisure. Hubmeyer, do you remember when we had the Luther lessons? If you were in here for my Luther lessons, when Luther had his big debates with John Eck, Johann Eck, who was the beefy, butcher kind of guy who knew his Bible and his languages and stood toe-to-toe with Luther, and, and at uh, the Diet of Worms is the one who, who challenged Luther, are these your writings, will you recant? He was Luther's big kind of nemesis. Okay, Dr. Eck had a prize student some ten years before his confrontations with Luther. His name, the name of the prize student of Dr. Eck was... Balthazar Hubmeyer. He, poor Eck, he couldn't get away from people who were <laughs> just going to rend to shreds his Catholicism. Um, Eck considered Hubmeyer his protege, wrote him letters of recommendation, said he's a great guy. Hubmeyer, on the other hand, would give incredible praise even in writing about Eck. There's no equal in knowledge of Scripture and everything else. This man just seems to know everything. He's so wonderful with words. He's so good at what he does. This is what Hubmeyer would say. I just wonder, history doesn't provide for us what Eck thought of Hubmeyer in Hubmeyer's later days. While Eck's trying to burn Luther, Eck's star student is off in his little world where he's now the priest in Waldschut, which is now southern Germany, just north of Zurich, Switzerland. And, and, and Hubmeyer's starting to read his Bible. He's starting to say, wow, this is very different from what we've always thought the church was. This is very different from practices. So he's reading through his scriptures, and he's thinking things are different. And he comes upon the baptism issue because some fella gets killed for being rebaptized. A local guy gets killed. A local Anabaptist is martyred for his faith. And Hubmeyer says, I'm going to read the scriptures on this. That just seems bizarre to me. And he starts reading the scriptures. And Hubmeyer decides that there's no scriptural basis for infant baptism. So Hubmeyer, uh, who's trained by Eck, who's a priest in Waldschut, um, uh, uh, a peasant's rebellion we don't have time for. We're skipping that point. Well, maybe not. We'll see. He gets into this baptism debate. Now, the baptism debate is one that, that uh, is actually swinging against Zwingli because Zwingli, for all of his things, is still an infant baptism kind of guy. So Hubmeyer writes a book, and Hubmeyer basically says that conversion consists of the following things. Preaching, and after there's preaching, there's believing and repentance. 
And after believing and repentance, there's baptism. Ready, aim, fire. That's the order. He says, you don't have it in that order. You've got it. Fire, ready, aim. And it doesn't work that way. It's ready, aim, fire, not fire, ready, aim. It is preaching, believing repentance, baptism. Not baptism, preaching, hearing repentance. Zwingli takes issue with him. Zwingli writes up against him and says, no, 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 no. You've missed the scriptures. You don't know Colossians 2, 11 through 13. It teaches infant baptism, Zwingli said. Colossians 2, 11 through 13 says, In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith. He says, circumcision is something that was done to infants. So to the extent that circumcision by Paul is being related to the circumcision or the baptism we've got, that shows that it's something being done to infants. That's what Zwingli says. It's like circumcision in, in Colossians. Hubmeyer writes back says, no, no, no. Colossians is talking about a believer's baptism. When someone came to a Jewish faith later in life, they would get circumcised. It didn't have to happen as an infant. And Paul isn't saying that it happens at the same time. He's saying it's the same kind of a concept. And for proof, go back and reread your Colossians passage and see that you've been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith. An infant can't have that faith. That's got to be talking about something that happened to believers. It's a believer's baptism. And that's what uh, Balthazar says. Believer's baptism. So, Balthazar... Uh, Hubmeyer is out there and he's preaching this doctrine and he's preaching it enough that he believes it. Uh, he's burned at the stake for it. March the 10th, 1528. I think he's the one they poured brandy on him. So that, on his, huh? Gunpowder on him. Yeah. I mean, this, this was viewed, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's another note from Dr. Fleming on one of the lessons. He says uh, to me, he says, you look at people who are willing to die for this and you think of how lightly so many of us regard baptism today. And I wonder where those people will stand at judgment as they look at us and say, I gave my life for that. Now, did that mean anything to you? It's just interesting conversations in heaven. Um, core Anabaptist beliefs then. One, faith alone saves. Now, I say core Anabaptist beliefs because there were different beliefs. I mean, anytime you start having individuals interpret Scripture... It's not hard to find differences of opinion. If you don't believe that, come to my house. <laughs> I have five children. I have my wife. Heaven knows there's me. <laughs> Anytime you get people in a group, you're going to have differences in opinion about Scripture. Now, some of them, some of the Anabaptist group feelings were rather off. For example, you read the book of Revelation. Talks about the salvation of the 144,000. The Anabaptists believed these were the 144,000 that were being rebaptized at the time. Some Anabaptists. Some. Not, not a lot. But this same strain of Anabaptists said that's the passage in Revelation that talks about Jesus coming again after time, times, and a half time, which means three and a half times. 
and they thought that's three and a half years. So Jesus will come back three and a half years from the time of the original baptisms, of the rebaptisms, in Mains's house. And they set the date. He didn't come back then. Um, and that threw him off a little bit. But, I mean, you get a lot of different people. So I can't give you all of their beliefs. They differed from place to place and house to house and church to church. These people didn't have concordances readily available where they could look up all the scriptures that talk about this, that, and the other. They're reading their Bibles and learning this stuff for the first time. So you've got differences in opinion, but these are the core beliefs. Faith alone saves. Baptism is for repentant believers. Interesting point here. While a good number of them immersed, in fact, one of their nicknames were the dunkers because they dunked, a lot of them poured, which is interesting because the Greek word baptism literally means immerse. We've just turned it into the word baptize. But, but if you were translating the original Greek, you would translate it immerse. That's what it meant. So, baptism is for repentant believers. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's not a re-crucifying of Jesus. The Bible is the authority for all of life, not merely church, but even outside of church. It regulates how you dress. It regulates how you... You will not find women in these churches wearing pearls. Because Peter says not to. You will find women in these churches wearing hats because Paul says that women should pray with their heads covered. Churches are to be independent from the government. Churches are the body of believers. They're not what the government has put together. Christians don't live by the sword. They were pacifists. Thousands and thousands of them were martyred and killed. They would not fight back, by and large. Now, let me tell you about uh, Jacob Hutter for a minute. Jacob Hutter, in the 1530s, got into the movement... And there were a number of the, the, the Anabaptists that were living in a commune-like existence. Those of you who are younger than the 60s may not know what a commune is. Do you know what a commune is? See? Isn't that wild? When we were 16, we knew what a commune was because we were close to the 60s. See, that's back when your dad's hair was like down to here. <laughs> she said, Dad, is that real? Um, a commune is where people all live together and hold everything in common. Um, you might have little different houses or rooms or something, but, but it's basically a community existence where you all live together. And this communal living is what was having trouble really catching on. They took it from the, the Acts passage in Acts 2.44 where it says that the disciples had all things in common. And the church, the early church in Acts, in early Acts, seems to have sold what they had. I, I think uh, a, a fair reading of that passage is, is they thought Jesus was probably returning within a matter of days or weeks or months. And so they just sold everything they had. And, and you know, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, i got a lot of things that I really don't need and I would do a lot better selling everything I've got and making sure everybody's got a meal today and we've got a chance to get the gospel out tomorrow. That's a real struggle by the way, for folks even today, because we are to live as if Jesus is returning any moment, and yet we're to be good stewards with what we've got. You know, so there's the yin and the yang, or the, the, the sweet and the sour, or the struggle or whatever involved in that. But, but in the early church, in, in Acts, they sell everything they've got, and they hold it in common. They have this community living. And so Hutter walks in and tries to help make that flow and really got that going within this Anabaptist movement. He got burned at the stake for it, 
along with 80% of the missionaries at that time that were out there preaching this, it was a dangerous thing. But uh, they took that passage literally. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And those are the Hutterites. Hutterites are still around today. Here is a picture of some Hutterites I pulled off the Internet. These folks showed up to watch some rocket launch of some amateur rocket people. And they came in from their fields. Hutterites live primarily, there are about 45,000 still. They live in western Canada, by and large, South Dakota and Montana. They live on big farms, 10,000 acres generally. And they keep, live in community. And they hold all things in common. And that's what they are. They have three core principles to live by. They share material goods. They say that's the principal way of showing that you love your neighbor as yourself. You share everything you have. You live in community. Uh, they surrender their self-will for whatever's good for the community. They don't assert their own interest. They try to live for the good of the community. And they've separated themselves from the evil world in their perception. They live off by themselves. They don't participate in, in politics. They don't participate in big things. In fact, one of the reasons a bunch of them are in Canada is because during World War I, they were conscientious objectors and they wouldn't fight. And they got persecuted here in the United States, so they went to Canada. Um, those are the Hutterites, and they are still around from the 1530s. Um, 1530s also, there's another group, followed a fellow named Menno Simons. Menno Simons was uh, 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 another priest. He was up in the Netherlands. He was a Dutch priest, and uh, he was a Catholic priest. Uh, he believed uh, um, what, what most Orthodox Christians would consider a fine point, but a point nonetheless of, of perhaps heresy. His concept was that when Jesus' body was created within Mary, the entire body was created by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's still a human body, but it's entirely Holy Spirit. I guess in scientific talk, it would not have Mary's DNA. Whereas the historical view of the church had always been that the Holy Spirit has come in and fathered the child but Mary was the child's physical mother and baby Jesus actually drew bodily uh, 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 from Mary. And so in common sense today in, in science talk, Jesus would have shared Mary's DNA. Okay? So that's a distinguishing point. But Menno Simons, other than that, he, he, he was uh, very much an Anabaptist. Uh, the, the Mennonites were some of the dunkers. They were some of the ones that were doing some of the dunking. Uh, Mennonites were still separating from the world. They were following many of the other principles. Today, if you were to look at Mennonites, some of them you would see and not know they're Mennonites unless they told you. The Mennonites have kind of divided up uh, into three different groups. There's the real um, um, uh, old-time conservative ones. They don't watch TV. They don't have computers. They don't have the Internet. Some of them don't live with public electricity. They live very simple agrarian lives. Then there are kind of the moderate ones that will dress a little bit more modernly but, and, and maybe have uh, the Internet for business purposes but no others, no TVs, things like that. And then there are the integrated Mennonites that believe in education, that have colleges, that... that are integrated into society that drive BMWs. Okay, I mean, they, 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 you don't, they, they dress normal. They can go to the beach without standing out for having, you know, <laughs> garb that no one would wear to the beach. They, 
they are integrated and they just follow these beliefs. Um, so the Mennonites are still here today. Uh, Jacob Amon broke off from the Mennonites in 1693. Big fight. That's an Amish wagon being pulled by a horse. Everybody's heard of the Amish? Seen the movie with Harrison Ford? Okay. Um, yes, witness. The, the, the Amon, uh, Jacob Amon, from which Amish gets its name, broke off in 1693 because he was upset because the church wasn't practicing the ban. The ban was, if you stepped out of line and started doing things sinful, the church would ban you from showing up. And Amon took it even further. Amon said, not only are you banned from, from, from uh, interaction with the church, but you're also banned from interaction with your spouse. Because your spouse is a member of the church, unless your spouse is off in heresy with you, or sin. So you've got a, a sinful practice where you're doing something out of line, then not only should the church ban you, but your spouse should as well. And that was a tough pill for the rest of the Mennonites to swallow in that area, so Ammon and the ones that swallowed it with him went their own separate way, and they became the Amish. And the Amish are represented today. There are lots of different things. Oh, you can find button Amish and non-button Amish. Some Amish believe you should not have buttons. That's just a little too much technology with your clothes. Other Amish believe buttons are okay. Those points I can't get into details on, but I can tell you the three B's are the core to the Amish, to most Amish. Beards, bonnets, and buggies. The idea is men don't shave. They have beards. Women wear bonnets. It's the First Corinthians head covering. And they ride in buggies because the Bible doesn't mention anything other than uh, uh, animals for means of transportation and walking. Uh, unless... <laughs> You read Ezekiel. Um, <laughs> these are the main people that still immerse for baptism. I tell you what, you got kids, you put them with mom, and she'll turn on a fire for scripture with them because they'll figure out there's all sorts of things that might be in there. And it made it a great house to grow up in. Um, the main immersers are these. Now, there's another group, the fourth group, called the Brethren Churches. I got an email from someone in here who grew up in the Brethren Church. I've got a friend at work who, who uh, 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 grew up in the Brethren Church. Um, uh, uh, the Brethren Church is an interesting church. These are feet washers, typically. The email from the guy in here said, you know, I could never understand why I always got the guy with the missing toe. And that's who's... <laughs> And he says, growing up, I had to wash that guy's feet more times than I can count. But they follow biblical practices as much as they can. There are over 215,000 brethren around the world today. Their concept, or their, their no creed but the New Testament. No creed but the New Testament. That's what they're famous for saying. Um, they do feet washing with their agape feast and their communion. And these are the brethren today. Now, our points for home. I, they're the same as last week, so um, listen anyway, because I've got a couple. I, I've added one little thing that uh, Dale had that was a good point. Um, points for home. I want to really emphasize how important it is that we discern the difference between matters of faith and matters of opinion. There are matters of faith that are important, that it's, it's, you, you give your life for, that you fight for for the church, that define the church. The church is the body of Christ. If we don't understand who Christ is, how can we be his body? 
So these are matters of faith. These are the matters where Paul said in the Galatians 1, 8, and 9 passage. He says it twice. I've just put Galatians 1, 8 on there, but he says it again because it's so important. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. He says, that's so important, I'll say it again. You know, but by the same token, there is the same Paul who writes that we are to accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Matters, I don't know. I don't know how you know, people come in. Are you premillennial, post-trib, pre-trib, anti-trib, anti-millennial? I, I mean, I've got opinions. But if Jesus wants to do it a different way than I think, that's fine with me. I'm not going to say, hey, I'm not going, man. I, this is not the way you're supposed to be doing it. I, okay, and, I, and I'm not going to disfellowship you if you disagree with me over it. I worship with the instruments here. You don't want to worship with instruments? Well, praise God, you worship with your heart and your mind and your body. You do what works for you. You want to come to this Sunday school class? If it's nourishing you and feeding you, praise God. If it's not, find one that is. And let us help you find one that is, because there are some great Sunday school classes here. You know, this, this is, we need to discern the difference. Here's an example. The passage that Dale gave me for the Amish and, and the other Anabaptists. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Tell me, what does this mean? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. So your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent on anybody. I leave at 4 o'clock today for Philadelphia. I'll be there tonight. I'll be there all day Monday, all day Tuesday, half of Wednesday when I go to New York City. I'll be there for Wednesday night, half of Thursday when I go to Atlantic City. I'll be there Thursday night, then I'll come here to go to Dallas on Friday. Then I come back here. I don't lead a quiet life minding my own business. I'm minding Merck's business. I'm minding the business of, of three or four of our Fortune 500 companies this week. Work with your hands? Well, I talk with them some. <laughs> so my daily life might win the respect of outsiders. I hope it does, even though I don't do the other. I hope people look at me and say there's something different about him. I hope I don't conduct business the same as everybody else in, in this world. So you will not be dependent on anybody. I couldn't survive without my wife. Oh, I couldn't. I can't survive without mom. And I'm 46. We've got her around the corner. My older sister brought me breakfast this morning because Becky's out of town. I mean, I'm in a lot of trouble on this. Unless I understand the heart and the spirit of it. And I think I do. So I'm not going to, but I'm not going to tell the Amish they're wrong because they want to work by their hands instead of be lawyers. Warring in the church. We've got to really change. We've got to be people of love. I love the vision David Fleming has for this church. And I want it because it's out of love. And I love the idea that we love people so much that we're going to try and reach out to them for Jesus Christ. I like the idea that we're not a, a church of people who look just like us. And we don't want to be a church of people who look and live just... We want the diversity of God's kingdom to be present in God's house. And I love that. I'm out of time.
let me get one more point for home. Um, I do think baptism is a serious thing. You know, I grew up in a church that taught you had to be baptized to go to heaven. Some of the church, not all of it. And I don't think that's true. And I had someone say to me one time, well, if it's not true, then why would you ever be baptized? My answer was pretty easy, because God said it. It's something God gave me that, that means a lot to me in my life. I'm able to look back and see a time of commitment to him and an, an association with his death and his resurrection. And I thank him for it. Because I'm not the same person that I was before I turned to God. And there's an event in my life that shows it, that I can hold on to. And remember, I really did make a decision for God. And that means a lot to me. And I urge you to find... Uh, in your mind and heart where that is and talk to people about it because it's important. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this class. I thank you for the people who come up and encourage me. I thank you for the opportunity to teach it. I pray your blessings upon the people here today. Through Jesus, amen.